Well, brothers and sisters, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. I thought it might be beneficial for us to spend some time in consecutive weeks addressing some of these parables because of their close connection to one another. And that's the only reason that I have kind of put off the study of the Apostles' Creed. But we will soon return uh, to that study in the, the next few weeks. If you would, stand with me. And let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the gospel. And our text this morning will be chapter 13 and verse 44. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we bow before You, recognizing our great need is not only to worship You, but to have Your Word put in our hearts, to have Your Word fill our minds, to have Your Word guide our path in our everyday living. And Father, I ask that You would bless this fallible preacher and bless this fallible congregation. Draw us to the word of truth and grace. Show us Christ this morning from this word. Make Him beautiful to us. Cause our hearts to yearn for Him. Lord, cause us to hear with ears that only the Holy Spirit can give. Give life. And give us sturdiness of faith that we desperately need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, the reading is verse 44. Hear these words that our Lord Jesus taught to His disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now the parable is small. It doesn't seem to need much explanation. I think that it's pretty self-explanatory. But it is a parable that our Lord Jesus taught to His disciples after he had retired from the shore of Galilee, speaking to the crowds the four previous parables that we've already looked at. He is now privately sitting with his disciples. And of course, he had to go into explanation with his disciples as they sit privately in their dwelling in order to explain to them the parable of the tares. If you look over there, if you look back at verse 36, look at what the word tells us. It says, And then he, that is being Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. We see in this explanation that the Lord Jesus does touch on two things that that I have constantly brought to your attention. That is this idea of obedience. Obedience. Notice what the Lord Jesus says in verse 41. He talks about these stumbling blocks. These stumbling blocks are all who are not part of the kingdom of God in reality. They may think they're part of the kingdom. They may be the ones who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not work many miracles in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, ye who practice lawlessness. We find that our Lord Jesus, when His mother and siblings desire to speak with Him, more than likely, possibly about the, the pressure that He had, or the trouble that He has stirred up among the Pharisees, to come speak sense to Him, to talk some sense into Jesus, He says, listen, my mother and my brothers and sisters are they who do the will of my Father. Jesus is emphasizing obedience. Obedience to what? The will of God. The Word of God. The law of God. Of course, we should take from that that there is no possibility whatsoever that anyone could ever claim to be in the kingdom of God, to know Jesus Christ, to have put their faith and trust in Him if they are not consciously concerned about their obedience. And I know that we have in this country and in other places swapped the experiential emotional for the reality and the imperative, the knowledge, and that which is just simple obedience over that which is experiential and emotional. There seems to be a a misplaced value upon the one who can sing and cry and exhibit great emotion, but yet turn right around and never desire to obey the simple imperatives of Scripture. And that's a problem. It was a problem in our Lord's time, and it is a problem still today. Jesus, without a doubt, is establishing how the kingdom of heaven comes to earth through the preaching of the gospel, through the presentation of Jesus Christ. And only those who have embraced Christ are going to bear the fruit of that kingdom. And that notice one thing that Jesus brings out as we look at and survey the context of these parables, which are so important to helping us understand the word of God. And not just to simply rip it up out of its context, but again to recognize that this was a series of parables that Jesus not only taught the disciples and the crowds, but now His disciples privately. 
Jesus could have easily said, listen, your enemies are the Pharisees. He didn't do that. They were enemies. But who did Jesus teach was the arch enemy of the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God. Satan. Satan is the arch enemy, the fountain, if you will, of all. The father of all who pose, who oppose the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ. Satan opposes that, and he is also the father of all of human people and societies that oppose Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. He is the singular fountain. Everything flows out of him that relates to hatred and malice and opposition to the gospel in the kingdom of Christ. And we need to remember that. This is why Jesus could come and when he was speaking to the crowds and having to address the Pharisees who were accusing Jesus of being blasphemous, that Jesus said, you know, if you were of your father, if your father was my father, you wouldn't oppose me. But... Because your father is the devil, you oppose me. And because your father is the devil, you oppose Abraham and you oppose Moses and now you oppose me. God's covenant people had a history of opposing God's glory and God's prophets. In fact, Jesus condemns that generation. And he says, has not your fathers condemned the prophets that I sent to them? Did, did any prophet succeed? And, and would they have found success? No, you murdered, you killed them all. And now you seek my own life. All of that malice, brothers and sisters, all of that hatred, all of that opposition comes from Satan. Now, what we should gain and glean from this is that if we're not in the kingdom of heaven, if we're not in the kingdom of God, if we have not embraced Christ as this precious Savior, we are of the devil. And we do stand as stumbling blocks in opposition to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Now, this parable this one verse parable seems to be simple and i think it is a simple one but it also seems to get right to the heart he's sitting with his disciples and and now is he he's going to continue to teach his disciples not only the uh expanse and the extensiveness and uh, of the kingdom of god but now he is pleased and desirous to teach his disciples the value of this kingdom. And that's what this parable addresses. This parable and the parable of the costly pearl help us grasp and understand in in common terms the the value. That we might estimate the value of this kingdom. What will it cost us What are we willing to pay for this kingdom 
of glory and power and righteousness. You can find that in the parable itself, what does Jesus say? He says that the kingdom of heaven is like, he's making this comparison. He says it's like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Here's what the, here's what sort of the the parable sets forth. Now, we don't know much about this person. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he was doing in the field. We don't know if he was like the merchant in verse 45 and 46. Notice the similarities of these two parables. He says in verse 45 and 6, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. In verse 44, we see that there is a man who stumbles on, accidentally finds a treasure. Not seeking a treasure, not knowing about the treasure, but accidentally, humanly speaking, stumbles upon and finds a treasure. The merchant, on the other hand, is seeking. He's desirous to find that one pearl, that one jewel, that, that, that one prize that exceeds them all. That one pearl that would be the mother of all pearls. That one pearl that is perfect in shape and color and form and that, that it would be the measure by which all other pearls are measured by the standard. They have similar responses to what they find. Notice that this man, again, we don't know if he was working and tilling the field. That's a lot of preachers that preach from this text have the man plowing in the field and stumbling upon in the plow. The plow gets hung up, if you will, on this treasure box. And he opens the treasure box. He finds out what's sticking the, 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 the plow and he pulls it up and he finds in it treasure. Or as Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish scholar of the 19th century says, he possibly may have been a man in purchasing fields. There was this, this idea or at least this practice during that time period where Investors would send out people to take their money and invest in, in property. And so this man is going about and he is finding property that he can invest in or others can invest in and purchase these fields. And that he finds in this particular estate or this lot, in this plot of ground, he finds this treasure and he goes back. And what does he do? He sells everything. And that's the point of the parable. There's nothing, nothing that he doesn't sell. He sells all that he has in order to go and trade with the owner of the field so that he might hold the deed in his own possession and that be his plot of ground and his treasure. There was a law of the rabbis during that time that if 
treasure was found in a field or treasure was found among produce, whoever owned it possessed it. That if you found it, you could buy the field and own and possess that treasure. Now, why is there treasure in this field? Well, that seems strange and odd to us, but it wasn't odd then when Jesus was teaching this parable. There were no banks during that day that could offer a safe deposit box for your cash. And in fact, Jesus teaches us right over in Matthew chapter 6, right? Well, don't store up your treasure where moth and rust and thieves could break in and steal. It, they were not in a habit of keeping great amounts of cash and coinage in their possession. Why? Well, because most dwellings were not that secure. Yes, they had locks, and yes, there were some fortification, but by and large, professional thieves could come in very easily and take what was yours. It was a very common thing. Thievery was a common thing. Not only was that a problem, but there were other problems associated with someone carrying large amounts of, of cash on them or money on them. What about the tax collectors of the day? Remember Jesus having to rebuke the tax collectors and you know who the tax collectors were. They were, they were men that people hated. Why did they hate the tax collectors? Well, it wasn't that just the tax collectors was doing the will of the king. The tax collectors didn't mind double dipping. The tax collectors didn't mind charging what the king would charge, but also charging a little more for himself. And of course, he had the power of the sword behind him. If they didn't pay, he could confiscate their property. He could have them thrown into prison. And that's what Jesus does until every dime is paid. You're going to be in jail. Okay? So you had to deal with, with these criminal and crooked tax collectors, but you also had to contend with the soldiers of the day. Remember when Jesus says, listen, if a soldier comes and tells you to carry his pack a mile, carry it two miles. But they also could demand money from you and take what was on your person. And so the habit was to take large sums of money and deposit it in a secret place, a safe place, some place that only you knew about. You would bury this money and then you would come back when the transaction was worked out. You would come back then and grab the money and go back and make the transaction. That way you didn't have to carry all this money on you and it'd be subject to be taken from you. And men would plant, uh, they would hide money in the field, but guess what? Sometimes they die. Yeah. Sometimes they die and they never go back and retrieve the money. Sometimes they're murdered. Sometimes they're thrown in jail. Or for numerous other reasons, that money is never picked up. And so it was not uncommon, and that's why they had laws made, and during that time, that governed finding treasure. Now, Jesus uses this common understanding and he creates this scenario to teach us how one should value the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he says here. He says that 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. I want you to point out to you that it's the treasure that's the cause of the joy. Look there with me. Which a man found and hid again and from joy over it. Jesus is very particular here in the original language. This joy is over the treasure. It's the treasure that causes this joy to spring up in this man's life. It's, it's an all-consuming joy, if you will. How do we know it's all-consuming? Because he goes to his own estate and he begins liquidating everything in his possession. Everything that he owns. It is so valuable. What he finds is so precious. It is so valuable to him that he sells everything he owns to go purchase that field. You see again in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, what does the Lord Jesus teach us? That the kingdom of heaven is to be sought first before all other things, right? That is that the kingdom of heaven is this priority. It is this, this, this first place, if you will. It is that which gives, um, it, it's that which ought to be at first rank over everything else. And we see this in the parable. We see this how the man responds. It is so precious. It is so valuable to him that he doesn't hesitate to sell everything he owns. And you can imagine what his friends think. Liquidating everything. I mean, everything's for sale. All, my, all guns are for sale. All your fishing poles are for sale. All, I mean, your truck, your cars. Your, there's nothing. Nothing. I don't want to. With, I'm afraid that if I were to keep one thing back, I wouldn't have enough money. To buy the field. And I don't want to lose it. So I give it all up. In order to have the treasure. Jesus isn't teaching us anything new here at all. There's nothing new in the parable. There's nothing that should surprise us. In fact, everything that I have said you know to be true. It's an all-consuming joy. It's a joy that, that, that... permeates from the inward to the outer man and it moves him to get rid of everything in his anything that would hinder me from possessing this treasure I want. I want the treasure. I don't want these things. I'll give you a couple of people to think about. Zacchaeus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 through 9. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was that wretched tax collector. He was not, he would not have been appreciated. He would not have been loved by his neighbors. He would have been despised and hated. But notice, as Jesus entered into Jericho and was passing through, there was a, a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature for he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way and when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus hurry down 
For today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Notice that. How did Zacchaeus receive Jesus? Gladly. And when he saw it, they all began to grumble saying, He has gone to the guest of a man who was a sinner. To them, a sinner and a tax collector was synonymous terms. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. And we see the joy of Zacchaeus. What did Zacchaeus stumble on? What did Zacchaeus find? He found a great treasure, did he not? What does a wretched sinner who is a tax collector need? Forgiveness for his fraud, for his deception, for his misuse of power, for his collecting on the misery of others. He now has received forgiveness and because he has received forgiveness and his sins have been taken away in Christ, Christ becomes the most precious thing to him. And what is he willing to do? Give it over. What what do I owe? What do I need to give? I give it all for Christ. What about Mary and Martha? I know we're talking about Women of ill repute, right? I mean, harlots. But they gave up everything to follow Christ. Remember, remember how she wiped his feet with her hair and washed them with her tears and, and anointed him with this most expensive ointment. And remember Judas. Remember Judas. He gets mad. That's expensive ointment. I mean, really, we could put that to use if we could sell that ointment and we could give that money to the poor. And Jesus says, no, no, no. What she does, she does for my glory. What she does, this expensive ointment, comparison to my glory is nothing. See, she understood the the great price. She understood the value, the treasure she had in Christ. And when she, having embraced that and having come to that reality that there is nothing in this world that I would withhold to would ever jeopardize my relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing that I would, would take over Him. There's nothing that I want besides Him. That is, I'm willing to demonstrate and sacrifice all this for His glory. And, 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 and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with I'm fine with that. No big deal. I desire it. What about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul was so zealous for Yahweh, he decided he wanted to put down this band of this cult called Christians. Let's do away with them. They 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 hindered the glory of God and Paul and his perceived service of of the true and living God goes to persecute the church, to kill some and throw them in prison. And what does the Lord Jesus do on that road to Damascus? He reveals Himself to Paul. He speaks to Paul. He opens Paul's eyes and heart. And Paul receives Him. And from that point on, what does the Apostle Paul do? 
He sells all that he has and follows Christ. All of it. Paul writes in a letter later on, he says, you know what? I consider everything dung in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. I consider it all trash, rubbish, feces. I consider everything that this world can offer me, the prestige, the status, the scholarships, all of that, that all the accolades, all of the peer groups that, that come along with being of a certain place and a certain stature, all of that I give over as dung to know Christ and Him crucified, to have that cross. Paul said, that's all I want to know. That's all I want to know. Look over to Luke 14. Jesus is again saying the same thing, and He says it in, different, in a different way, but nevertheless, it's the same principle and the same truth. In verse 25, He says, Now large crowds were going along with Christ, with Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. That's the principle. That's the the naked reality and truth of it all. That there can be nothing withheld back. If you're going to enter into the narrow gate, if you're going to walk through the narrow way, you must forsake all and embrace Christ. That's what the parable is talking about. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That seems clear, doesn't it? I mean, it's this idea that, brothers and sisters, we cannot, we cannot have the treasure without the selling of the estate. That's not, that misses the point of the parable. That the one who stumbles on and finds this treasure goes and sells all that he has. He withholds nothing. And then he goes and possesses the treasure. And he doesn't possess the treasure until he forsakes all that he has. Jesus is teaching his disciples this. That not only the kingdom of God must be preached and it must be known and it must be truth, but it must be something that you possess. It must be yours. And you have to possess it. You can't just know about Jesus. You have to have Him as your Jesus. You can't just know about Christ. He has to be your Christ. You can't just know about the kingdom of God. You must be in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God must be in you. That's what Jesus is teaching us. He is teaching us that there is no amount of money, there's no amount of family pressure, there's no amount of job worthy of, of losing this kingdom, there's no status worth holding on to that is greater than Christ. Remember what. The one man told Jesus, he said, Oh, Jesus, I want to come and follow you. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, No, no, no. 
Let the dead bury the dead. If you want to come after me, come after me. If not, you can't, you're not worthy of me. It seems like a high price, doesn't it? In fact, as I close this message this morning, because I think the parable speaks for itself, I don't think there's anything more that can be said other than that the one who finds this hidden treasure, he sells all that he has. There's nothing he withholds and he wants that treasure. It's joy to him. It's precious to him. And that's what we're confronted with. In conclusion this morning, I want to address two kinds of people here today. Possibly two kinds of people. And as I do this, let's sort of form a conclusion to the parable itself. It is obvious that the, 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 the finder, the one who finds the treasure, sells everything he owns to possess the treasure he finds. This treasure is so great to him, it's the cause of his great joy. Remember, I mean, everything he sells, everything he sells is one step closer to him possessing Christ. Everything he sells is one step, is one step closer to him possessing the treasure. One step closer. Now here's the conclusion. As Christ has been, as, as Christ has been exhibited to you in the Scriptures, is He the cause of your greatest joy? And are you willing to forsake all to, all to come after Him? Is Christ the source of your greatest joy? And are you willing to forsake all to follow Him? Now, I say two different kinds of people because I want, I, I think two things. Number one, the possibility that the lies of Satan have been believed. Satan comes as a liar, an adversary. He comes as a, as a deceiver. And he is a master deceiver in, in, in convincing people to believe that they can have a greater life. They can have just as much joy, just as much peace, just as much happiness by living their own life on their own terms and according to their own pleasures as Christ. That joy, that peace, that happiness that only comes through Him. Now the joy that we're talking about is not any joy other than the joy that one has when they possess Christ. Because there is no other true joy. Everything else is facade. It's fake. It's not real. It's passing away. It's like a breath. It's like a season of life. It's here and gone. And then there's the next, there's the next pursuit of joy. And there's the next pursuit of happiness. And then it's something else. And it's something else. And it's something else. And it's all fleeting. And it's all just, it just passes away. But the joy that we're talking about here is the joy that is rooted and grounded in the firm relationship and communion with Jesus Christ. It does doesn't go away, though it can be diminished. 
And that's going to be the second person I talk to. The second one. The first one is this. Have you believed that lie? Have you come to believe that you can have Jesus in this world and still be a true member of the kingdom of God? Do you believe that? You see, you, you can't. The teachings of Jesus is too clear. And that you know why? That's why so many people don't really want to read their Bible. It's too clear. It's too convicting. It's too confronting. That's why most Christians don't read their Bible. They would rather live by feelings and emotions. They would rather live by the, the happy, clappy sermons that are all around us. Men that preach a message that for itching ears, if you will. The social gospel, the social club Jesus. But brothers and sisters, I will tell you as your pastor who loves you deeply that those gospels are no gospels at all. And anyone who embraces those deceptive lives will find themselves along with those that Jesus spoke about. Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he says, I, I, I never knew you. That's the question. Is that the joy in your life, does it stem from, result from a relationship with Christ? Is He the hub? Is He the fountain? Or do you find greater joy in all these other things? Family, status, wealth, pleasure, if that's the source and the fountain and the hub of joy, then you are not in the kingdom of God. You're not. And the question that you need to wrestle with this morning is, will you see Christ as this treasure? Will He be precious to you? I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, there's no other way to come into this kingdom except through the narrow way, the straight gate. The only way you can come through that narrow way, that narrow passage and that straight gate is to forsake all that you are. Forsake it. Your name, your gifts, your talents, all that you believe you are, are nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. That is, have that mindset that Lord Jesus Christ is worth a million Jess Stanfields. What's, what's my life? What have I produced in my life that compares to the glory of Christ? What have you produced? What have you done? What have you accomplished? that compares to such a glorious Savior. I want to know, number one, have you embraced the Christ of Scripture or have you believed the lie of Satan? Have you believed in a false Christ? See, this Christ demands it all. All to Him you owe. 
There's nothing you can withhold. There's nothing you can give back. I mean, there's, there, you must be willing to forsake it all. You know who wasn't? You know who heard these words? Judas. Judas heard the Lord Jesus teach in this parable and he probably thought that he had given it all. Look, I'm going around, I'm preaching, I've been healing people. Lord, you've sent me out. He probably thought he was okay, but he never come to the reality that Jesus was the true joy and the treasure of his life. It was him. And he made his own determination. And in the end, what did he do? He fell away and betrayed Christ and suffered suicide. Peter heard these words and he come to a place where he denies the Lord. And we see just how Christ was precious to Peter. You say, well, well, wait a minute. It wasn't so precious. He denied the Lord. But what do we see in Peter's life after the fact? We see him running away weeping and wailing knowing he had just, just completely let his friend down. And he goes... And he goes back to fishing. You can imagine his conscience. Can you imagine Peter having to deal with the burden of his conscience? And when he saw his Lord and Savior walking on that beach when he was on that boat fishing, what did Peter do? Peter couldn't wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps in the water. Why? Because Christ was precious to him. And he had made a big mistake. He had sinned against the glory of Christ. And, and he knew it. And he was carrying the guilt of it. And he knew there was only one place where he could go and have that joy restored. And that was back to Jesus. And that's where Jesus asked him those three times, Do you love me, Peter? And finally Peter says, Lord, you know. You know. You know I love you. I'll go feed my sheep, Peter. I'll be with you. And I'll strengthen you. You see, you may be here this morning and you think God's Word's too restrictive. You think it's too binding. And you know what? I'm going to use this phrase. It's just not fun being a Christian. You can't go see certain kinds of movies. I mean, you, you know, you, you have to... You have to dedicate yourself to the worship of the Lord, to the tithing, the giving of His kingdom. You have to you know, be willing to serve the people of God. You've got to be willing to sacrifice. You've got to be willing to love others and love your enemies. It's just, it's just not fun doing that. And that's the same thing that the kings of the earth said in Psalm 2, right? They got together and they, 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 they railed against what? The cords of the Lord. They didn't want His feathers binding them. They didn't want the Word of God binding them. We want to make up our own rules. We want to have our own laws. We want to do our own thing. We don't want these, this law of God on us. And how many Christians, Christian school, Christian churches, how many say, you know what, Man, that word is too binding, it's too narrow. They are not in the kingdom of heaven. They've never found the treasure that Jesus is speaking of here. Because when you find it, the cause is joy. Joy. So, a joy so strong. Take it. Take it. Because I would rather give all this other up than to get rid of him.
Just take it. It's yours. You can have it. Let me address the second group, and I think most of you fall into this group or possibly fall into the group. I'm sorry if I insinuated anything that's not true. We have the one group that possibly may be believing the lie of Satan. But then there's the other group that is important. Turn, turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Look at verse 10. You know, we know the story, right? We know the background of this psalm because it's so important to what I'm about to say. David has sinned grievous, grievously in the face of Christ, in the face of God. And he has borne the guilt and the burden of this sin. And Psalm 51 is a psalm that he wrote to be a testament, if you will, of of how precious God's glory is to him, really. Yes, he sinned. But he was still a man, if you will, after God's own heart, even as a sinner. And look at verse 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. That's the kingdom of God. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, maybe you're here this morning and there was a time when you had this joy and it was so hot and fervent. And nothing seemed... It's, every, that joy was like armor to you. Everything just bounced off of you. Because you were so enthralled with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, with the joy of having your sins forgiven, with the joy of understanding that you are a wretched sinner and undeserving of all of these benefits in Christ, and now you have them, and there's nothing that you're not willing to give up. There's nothing that you are willing to do according to the will of God. And you're just, I mean, this joy was like a solid armor. Nothing penetrated it. But that's not the case now. And that joy has been diminished. And your joy has taken a hit. And it's taken hit after hit after hit. And because you've harbored sin in your heart, that joy has been greatly diminished. And what, where you once saw Christ is so precious. Now that preciousness seems dim. This parable calls you back. To that day. To that joy that you found in Christ. From the day one. The very beginning. Remember that joy. Like David. Come and lay yourself before God. And, 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 and confess your sins. And, and, and know that they can be forgiven. And your heart can be cleansed. And your ways can be made straight. And that joy. Guess what? How do you know? How do you know you've been restored? The joy is back in your life. The joy of knowing Christ. 
The joy of being able to work in His kingdom. The joy of doing His will. The joy is back in your life. Brothers and sisters, joy is one of those staples of knowing you are a Christian. Anyone walking around in the morose doldrums of life have never found Christ. Because it's only Christ that can pick any person up in the darkest hour. It's only Christ. Christ has the length and the strength of arm to hold any of His saints up in the hardest and darkest of times. Like David. Like Peter. Maybe like you. Brothers and sisters, let's end this message with this thought. Am I willing? Do I possess this treasure? Do I possess this Christ? Has my joy been been a reflection of the joy of coming into possession of a great treasure? Knowing Jesus Christ. If not, I want to make that change now. I want to change it. I want to know Christ. I want this precious treasure. I want my life to be marked with a deep abiding joy that makes me different from the world that doesn't know real joy. I want to have the right estimation value of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and I'll sacrifice everything for it. Now I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about Christ. Denominations don't save Preachers don't save. Jesus saves. And that's who we must contend with. And I hope you will contend with that today. Let's pray.